of this morning, what we're supposed to be talking about, is we're going to ask a couple questions, like how people recognize Jesus in a world before social media. How they know who he was. Um, what was Jesus known for? And so we're going to kind of tend, take these same questions, we're going to apply them to ourselves, and then we're going to finish with this kind of unusual topic of the transformation of public spaces. All right? So we'll see what happens. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit as your word is read and proclaimed that we might hear with joy what it is that you want to speak to us today. Amen. Amen. So when I first read this gospel lesson, it reminded me of this story a few years ago. Um, and I'm glad that Lindros are here because it's about them. Um, <laughs> it's always borderline whether I want the person to actually be here or not. This one, I totally did. Uh, but sometimes like when I talk about my kids or something, I'm like, oh man, it'd be better that they weren't here. <laughs> um, but this is perfect. And because it reminded me of our uh, Whitney experience. So a couple of us from, from here and a couple friends from outside all went together. I don't remember how many. There was like 18 of us or something like that. We all thought that climbing Mount Whitney in a day, we thought that that sounded like a really good idea um, at the time. <laughs> um, and we trained really hard for it. We were really prepared. But even so, like it hurt bad, like really bad. Um, and the wolves are doing it. Uh, and he's not here today, so... This is good. You won't hear this horror part of the story because Tom and one of his sons are doing it. And so we set out about 2 a.m. or so hoping we'd make it out before sunset. The next night, 16 hours battling like altitude sickness and soreness, injuries, really cold temperatures, and 8,000 feet of ele- elevation gain, um, all to say that we climbed not with me in a day, right? It's like this little badge of honor. I bought the shirt. I should have worn it. Um, and so our group stayed pretty well together on the way up. But on the return trip, we all got separated. So kind of Katie and I walked for hours on our own, and so did some other folks. Um, and near the end, we were close to the end, and we ran into some people, and they came by, and they said, you're almost there. Like, keep it up. It's one more mile to go. And to tell you how happy I was at that moment, you have no idea, right? I was ecstatic. I thought to myself, like, I can do anything one more time. I can walk, anyone can walk one more mile. And then the next person that we came across said, just one more mile to go. No one else there. And that's about a mile later, right? And so as if this wasn't bad enough, the same thing actually happened a third time. So three additional miles at least we walked further than our brains were telling us we had to go, Right? So to say that I was irritated with these people would be like the understatement of the year. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm still mad at it. All right? <laughs> uh, to put this in perspective a little bit, so I actually injured myself. I had torn the labrum in my left hip at the top. So right after some going, summoning, I started coming down and something was wrong, and I actually had to stop. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not really sure I can continue walking. And then you're 11 miles and 14,000 feet up, and who's going to come get you? You know, I'm like, I can't afford the helicopter ride. Um, so i got to figure this out. And so I kind of dragged my left foot and shuffled 11 miles <laughs> down Mount Whitney, and it was really bad. Um, and so the whole time I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I, when I get to the end for three miles, the last three miles, all I could think about was, like, if I had pictures of these people that told me that I was almost there, I'd be posting them in my garage for dark hours, right? When I finished, that's the most miserable I've ever been in my life, right? All I could think about was putting my leg up 
resting and not waking up for like three days. But we had a pretty significant decision to make because my friends, Eric and Michelle, were still out there somewhere, right? <laughs> the sun had now set and Katie and I had to make a decision. It was important because it was our car in the parking lot and the campground was like another half mile down the road. So we had a pretty important decision to make. Were we going to wait for him? Um, or were we just going to head back to camp and put our feet up, <laughs> relax, and make them walk the rest of the way, right? Now, I know this is going to be hard for most people to believe, but Katie actually tried to convince me that we should just leave them stranded there alone, <laughs> like, friendless, in the dark. <laughs> but, like, I just didn't think that was right, so... <laughs> I convinced her to stay with me. I tried to do it with a straight face. I almost did um, Totally not true, as you already know. Um, but it's actually, thinking about it seriously, right? It's one of those moments in life that shows people who you really are, or at least who you really want to be, right? Who you are, who you want to be. What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want to be known for or recognized for or as? And so we... we we talked about it, and we thought to ourselves, like you said, like if they're hurting half as bad as we are, we have to wait. Or we gotta go back up and try to find them. One of the two. So we chose to wait because they couldn't find them. And eventually, the sun sets and it's now dark, and they eventually come walking down the hill and into the parking lot, and it was like, this is what I thought about. I thought that if I had left them there, if we had decided to leave them there, it would have become one of our more regrettable moments, right? Like, we would have looked back and we would have said, man, I wish we would have done that differently. You know, right? And you probably would have said the same thing. I would have been in their garage there to throw darts at me. Yeah, Brad, nice work. That was good. Um, and, you know, and then I started thinking about it like this, too, right? It's just this really small act of mercy given to a good friend. Because it turns out, and Michelle had an injury too, she injured her foot, it's still, today, injured. may never go away. So she has like a permanent injury, mine's recovering. Um, but the question that I asked myself when I read the text today was, would I have done this to complete, would I have done this to total strangers? Would I have made the same decision? If there were really people that I didn't know, people that I didn't know as well, as I know you guys, um, I'm not sure what the answer is. But this is what made me think, because Jesus and his disciples, they're exhausted, they're desperate for some rest, um, but they have this large crowd that kind of presses in on them, messes everything up, and Jesus has to make us not quite the same decision, but it's similar. And so listen to how Jesus responded, Mark 6, 30 to 34, and then it jumps to 53 to 56. It's the way the lectionary works, I'll explain that in a minute, but we'll get the rest of the story, I think, next week. The apostles gathered around Jesus told them all that they had done, and talked. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him. 
and rushed about the whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The word of the Lord. And so here's where we're at, right? Jesus' popularity is going viral. His mission is expanding. He'd actually just sent the, the 12 on their first mission without him. They've returned to tell Jesus about all the stuff that happened while they were gone. Last week, we dealt with a really difficult... If you missed last week, congratulations. <laughs> it was really difficult. Because when the disciples return, then Jesus has something he's got to tell them. Yeah, Herod, King Herod removes John the Baptist's head, right? And so the disciples come home. And this is kind of the end of the innocence for the disciples. They learn that following Jesus is now going to be costly. And so they're exhausted from their journey. They're in desperate need for some rest. And so I don't know, we should all be able to relate to this. Like, I just think this used to happen to me all the time. I took kids on these mission trips. And, you know, you work for 24-7. You sleep on the floor. You've got 50 teenagers or more that you're, that you're there with. And so I used to come home. And it's like, God help the person that interrupted my rest when I came back. I was like, I was something subhuman when I returned from these trips. And if you, you've been on them with me, uh, know what this feeling is like. Do we all we can relate to that? We've all been exhausted at some point, right? And so Jesus and the disciples, they've been pushing through. They're running on empty. They need some alone time. They need some rest. And it's like, in Mark's gospel, this is sort of a joke, but it's actually serious at the same time. If you read Mark's gospel... Jesus was so busy that he actually had to die to get three days rest. Think about that. <laughs> Serious. It's, I mean, it's, it can be a little funny if you've got a mind like mine. But it's really serious. This is the way that Mark moves. It moves that fast. Jesus never gets a break in Mark. And so they've been so busy. So many people are demanding their attention. They can't even, the scripture says, they can't even sit down long enough to have a meal in peace. That's how busy they were. Now, like, I get busy. Uh, like all of you, but I don't skip many meals, you know? Um, I don't get that busy. And so they grab a boat, they try to find a deserted place to be alone, they set sail up the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd sees them. This is amazing stuff to me. The crowd sees them, they see the disciples, and they hurry overland and try to intercept them. When they get to the place they're going, the crowd's already sitting there waiting for them, right? Like, don't you hate it when your fans do that to you? I, if I'm Jesus... I'm getting bent out of shape. Like, now I'm thinking about this crowd of people like the three people on the Whitney Trail, right? Jesus has got some decisions to make. He's got to figure out, what's he going to do? Like, how does Jesus get out of dealing with this obnoxious crowd? So here's my list, right? Here are the things that go through my mind. Like, pretend he doesn't see him and just sail right on by. You know, that's an option. He moors the boat, he dishes him on foot. Uh, he angers the boat, and he just sits there and refuses to come ashore, I and mean, he guess he's got that option. And my favorite, yell fire and hope they all run away. Um, I mean, these are the things that are going through my mind. Like, what do you do in this situation if you're Jesus? Fortunately, Jesus chooses another way, a better way. And instead, this is what we see. When they interrupt his much-needed break, this is what he does. He looks upon them with compassion, as a sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus sees this crowd that's literally, you think about this, they're chasing after him. They're running across the land to meet him where he's going to be. And he sees this crowd and he has compassion. This crowd that's ruined his day, this crowd that's refusing to allow him any rest, to get any quality time with his disciples instead of avoiding them, instead of scolding them, instead of chasing them off, 
Jesus shows mercy. I think one of the things about this passage that surprised me was the kind of mercy, the way that showed Jesus showed compassion. He says he taught them. That was Jesus's, this is part of Jesus' act of compassion. He taught them. It's not what I expected when I looked at this. Now, there is a second part. For those of us that know this scripture or are looking at it in front of them in the Bible, you'll know that it's missing a significant chunk, the feeding of this crowd, is the other aspect of compassion. So Jesus does two things. Jesus' act of mercy and compassion is he feeds them and he teaches them. Right? We're going to get the feeding, I think it's next Sunday. And so we don't really know what Jesus taught, but I'm going to offer a guess based on what we're looking at in this passage. All sheep need a shepherd. All sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable and at risk. And so Jesus looks at this crowd with compassion uh, because they're leaderless. They're vulnerable. And so what we're used to is we're used to the bad shepherds. We looked at one of those last week, like King Herod, right? The bad ones. Scriptures are really clear about what the good shepherd Good shepherd looks like it versus the bad shepherds, right? The bad shepherds, they don't care about the sheep. They care about looking out for number one. And Herod did a great job of this, right? But Jesus, the good shepherd, says that this is what the Bible says about the good shepherd. There was good shepherd Sunday like a month or two ago. Um, and what we learned there was that the good shepherd, he knows the sheep. The good shepherd cares about the sheep. And eventually, the biggest thing is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We remember that stuff. Right? And so I find it fascinating. We look at last week's passage. We look at the bad shepherd, this terrible leader, Herod Antipas. This throws this birthday banquet for the rich and powerful. He did a great job of looking out for himself. He was an expert at using his power to silence critics. This is what we talked about last week. It was hard stuff. He excelled in terrorist leadership tactics. This crowd of people that's chasing after Jesus is looking for something different. They're looking for a good shepherd. They're chasing after a good shepherd. So I'm almost certain, looking at this, that one of the many things that Jesus would have taught them is that when they look at him, they find and see exactly what it is that they're looking for and chasing after. Right? That's what I think is going on here. And so Jesus gets back in the boat. He sails back across to this uh, place called Gennesaret. He anchors the boat. And what happens again? Immediately the people, as soon as he steps out of the boat, the scripture says that people recognize him. How do they recognize him? How do they know who he is? He's never been there before, right? Have you ever wondered how do these people know who Jesus is? So like Jesus arrives in this place 2,000 years before Instagram and Facebook, none of the gospels give a physical description of Jesus. How do these people know who he is? This is what I think Mark wants us to really think about. They recognized him by who he was and by what he did. This is how they recognized him, not his physical appearance. And so here are these people. They're so excited. They're rushing about. They're gathering up all of their sick. And they're carrying them on mats to wherever Jesus was. I think they knew who he was because Jesus stood in solidarity and he engaged people who were suffering. Right? That's really what I think Mark wants us to see. And so they know Jesus because of his compassion and mercy. That these are literally this reputation, Jesus' reputation, this compassion, this mercy, this healing, it was spreading like wildfire all over Galilee. This, is, this reputation literally preceded him, right? Think about this text, how it works. They know who he is. They recognize him. Compassion and mercy, they're not the first things, I don't know about you, but they're not the first things I expect when I'm dealing with people I don't know. It's not what I expect when I meet total strangers at the first thing. 
And so people throughout the region, they bring their sick to the town squares where Jesus was. It says, just to have the chance to touch the fringe of his cloak. All who did were healed. This is an interesting word, because the word healed in Greek, where it comes from, it could either mean healed or saved. And so it's this little clue, right? This little clue that seems to indicate that these physical blessings, these healings, are not an end to themselves, but they create this moment that can lead to something greater or bigger than just the physical healing. Maybe the indication is here that, that all were healed by Jesus, but some were restored in a more relational and permanent sense, healed from the inside out. And so I was thinking about this, and I, I asked a couple questions, and I threw them out there for me, and we'll see what happens. We'll throw them out there for you. If Jesus is known by his compassion, and Jesus is known by his mercy and healing, what are you known for? How would people recognize you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Would they? Jesus' compassion and mercy for suffering people, this is what stood out to the crowds. It's what made him different, set him apart, and made him unique. In Jesus, they actually saw a good shepherd that was worthy of following. And so here's a final thought. And I thought that this, when I, when I look back at this now, I probably should have made the entire message about this. Because it really, it gets me really thinking. The crowds of people that are bringing their sick and the suffering to places they knew Jesus was hanging out. List a couple of those places, right? They brought their sick and suffering to the marketplaces hoping to touch Jesus. This is a fascinating deal, marketplaces. This is the word that when I look at it now, it just jumps off the page of me. They're political and commercial centers. They're cultural centers. They're places where things are bought and sold. They're places of debate and politics and marketplaces. It's where the action was. And what does Jesus do when he enters into these city centers, these commercial centers? Jesus turns these marketplaces into centers of healing and restoration. These commercial centers are transformed into something completely different. You look at that, you're like, that'll preach. Like, I should have just focused on this the whole time, but I didn't. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus doesn't want his followers, his church, people like you and me to do the same thing, to help transform our cultural centers from places of consumerism and exploitation to places of healing and restoration. It's like, could Jesus' church do that? Let's make it more personal for a second. So, think of all the places that you hang out. All the places that you find yourselves in the marketplaces of the Kineo Valley or beyond, the places that you frequent. And make a list of those places, even if in your mind. In missional church planting, we call these like third spaces, right? They're not home, they're not work, but they're places that you frequent all the time. Places where you know people and places where you might be known. So I made a list for myself. Ragamuffin Coffee in New Great Park, Dos Community Center where I play basketball, Five Threads Brewing, where I might, on a rare occasion, enjoy a cold beverage. <laughs> Albertsons, the UPS store, where I practically live at Home Depot. These are a few places where I spend enough time where I actually know people by name. People know me. And then what I did for myself was I made it even more personal. I thought about a particular place. And so when I was first thinking about planting Lightshine, I started thinking about this topic of the transformation of public marketplaces, and I tried this new practice, something I really hadn't done much and thought too much about before, but I hung out at this coffee shop, it's called Bent on Coffee, it just went out of business, it's just tragic, I cried, 
Um, I knew everybody in there, most by name. Everybody there knew who I was and knew what I did. Um, but what I always thought was, I went there, um, this is funny too, that the owner was Jewish, and he, every time I walked in the door, he called me rabbi, um, just out loud, and so everybody would, in the coffee shop that didn't know me would turn and be like, he's a rabbi? <laughs> um, anyway, so what I previously thought of, when I went to this place, I always went there to read or study. So it was like my quiet, that was my quiet place, right? I, would, I was friendly, I knew everyone and talked to everyone, but what I was really trying to do was get some caffeine and hang out and read and study and write, right? And then when I started thinking about church planning and this kind of topic of transforming public spaces, I used to go in with a different attitude. I changed my attitude and I said, you know what? I would just say this really short prayer, like, Lord, open my eyes and open my ears to the things that are going on around me, to these people, friends or not. And amazing what happened, it was only about a week or two after that a friend of mine, a guy that I knew, Jim, who every time I say good morning, I'd say, how are you? He would say, I'm on the right side of the grass. That was his response. Um, that's Jim. That's all I knew about Jim up to this point, was he'd say that to me every morning, right? So I always thought it was funny. I couldn't wait to hear it. Um, and then one day he said, hey, Rob, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. He's like, yeah, and he was going through a divorce. And he said he needed help talking through stuff. Another week later, another guy, this guy Pete, that a few of us know, Commodore knows him, uh, he actually said a couple weeks later, he said, you know, I'm really having trouble with my teenage daughter. He's like, would you help me? I know you do a lot of this kind of work. Would you help me talk through some stuff with my teenage daughter, right? And I would think about this, and I say, is Ben on coffee? Is a coffee shop a place that you would ever think of as a potential place for transformation, for healing, for restoration? You know what I mean? Like, we think of it as a coffee shop. Jesus transforms marketplaces into places of healing and restoration, right? And so can the church do the same thing. In the body of Christ, working alongside the Spirit, transform a city center into a place of compassion and healing. And so we'll finish with this. In these third spaces, right, so hopefully I've got you thinking about these places that you frequent, places where you're known for. My question is, what are you known for in those places? How do they know you in those places? How do they, how do they recognize you? Like, yeah, they know your face. Maybe they know your name. But my question would be, should they know more? Should they know more than just your name or recognize your face? And food for thought over lunch. Like, if you went to a place this afternoon that you've never been before, how would people recognize you as one of Jesus' sheep? How would they know? And you can't wear a Christian t-shirt. That's off the list. Like, how else could they know that you're one of Jesus' sheep? As we follow Jesus, may our marketplaces become centers of healing and restoration because we, the body of Christ, are there. And that the Spirit walks alongside us and with us. That we're co-laborers in the same mission. Let's pray.